been in a series called Identity. This is our, I believe, our 10th uh, thing, so you should be knowing the song by now and like the whole video, right? I like to go long enough that you guys know the whole video to where you're bored of it. So um, we've been studying who we are. Who, who are we? Uh, what, who does God say we are? Who does the world say we are? And why is the world wrong and God right? Because the world's always wrong and God's always right. Um, but we're, we're kind of figuring out who, who we are as those who have been saved and redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Last night, I put out a comment on the Acts Church app. Hope you guys have the app. If you don't have the app, if you're recent to the church, you don't have the app. That's where we talk. We can message each other. There's announcements to come out. All of our content, like these sermons and uh, the end time study group and all that, that's all on the app. So if you don't have the app, you should get the app. If you don't know how to get the app, you go to your app store. It's there. Acts Church Northwest. You'll figure it out. It's got the little logo that you see all over, over here. Um, but I was on the app last night, and I, and I just wanted to be like, ah, I'm excited about tomorrow. So, hey, I'm excited to see you guys tomorrow. I uh, hope you're going to be there. We're going to have baptisms. And I said, wrapping up the identity series. Well, I get a text from Susan Vanderplug, and she, uh, the essence of her, of her text was, yeah, right, right? Like, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, no, I've, told, I've got to figure it figured out. I've got it all here. It's, it's right here. It's going to, you know, it's going to, I've got the notes. I'm ready to go and whatever. And then on Saturday nights, I always put it together. Like I've got the notes, I've got my stuff, and then I put it together and, you know, kind of pray that the Holy Spirit will guide me to put it together. And as I did that, I realized she's right. I'm not going <laughs> to, bottom line, we got more identity uh, to go through. Look, y'all just need a lot of teaching on this, okay? Or I do, or we all do, I think. Uh, I think that's why the Lord keeps leading us to, to continue to walk through this because it's such an important thing. Uh, in our society and in the time that we're in right now. So, real, I'm hoping it'll be one more um, after this. Look, I'm not even going to say it. Look, it's going to be at least one more, okay? Lord willing, there'll be at least one more. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to do it next week because that's the week before Christmas and you all want kind of a Christmassy service. I don't care. We're probably going to do this again next week. And then we have Christmas Eve, so you'll have that. And then we have the day after Christmas, which will probably be me finishing it again instead of finishing it now or the next week. So, all right. Just deal with the people, okay? If I could preach for three or four hours like the Micronesian church, we'd get through this thing. <laughs> like, no, we'll take the time. All right, so last time uh, we, I started this sermon that has turned into at least three now, um, and we had, we had some charts. Let's put this chart up that we had last time. So pretty simple, right? We were starting from the top, and we're like, who are we? What's our identity? And we started with human Human beings, right? And what we found out was that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. There's a plan and a purpose. Uh, you know, we're, we're different than every other creature that God's created. Uh, God loves us in this very particular way and, and, and what it meant to be a human. And we're knit together in our mother's wombs and we have this value. And then we went to chart two where we sort of split out these two types of people. These two sections, these two divisions of people. And one is a Christ follower and one is the unbeliever. And this sharpening into two groups, this division is the most important thing in life to every one of us. Everyone that's ever going to listen to this, everyone that's here, the most important division in life is, are you a Christ follower or are you an unbeliever? It doesn't get any more stark than that. Are you saved from your sin? Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
The question of whether you have followed Jesus by confessing him as Lord of your life and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead is the dividing line of your eternal identity, period. Anybody who tells you anything else, and you will hear lots of other things like, well, I have an eternal destiny in heaven with God. Oh, why? Because I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not, okay? You're not. You're not a good person. We have sinned. We have fallen. We have rebelled against God. You're not. Some people will just say, listen, I know that it's all going to be good because all roads sort of lead to heaven. I can kind of believe what I want to believe and I'll be all right. Not true. Jesus Christ tells us he's the way, the truth, and the life. And he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except by him. So this is the dividing line. There's no fuzziness in it. You're a Christ follower or you're an unbeliever. Those are the two places that you can be, the statuses that you can have this morning, right now. You have one of those statuses. And God makes it clear, Christ makes it clear multiple times that there are two groups. He talks about these two groups, and he says that the one group that will not follow him, the unbelievers, will be separated from him in hell eternally. I know that's not fun to talk about. It's like, why do you guys have to talk about hell? Why can't we just talk about fun stuff? Because some of you are going to hell. Oh, it's so mean. Yeah, it's not. I just, I don't want you to. Some of the people who will listen to this right now are in this group called unbelievers and are headed towards hell. It's a very, very serious, sober thing. It's one of the reasons that we do this. It's why we get so excited when we're baptizing people, when we're seeing people go from death to life. It's a very serious thing. But Jesus also makes this clear, that there will be those who identify themselves as his children, his servants, his disciples, his followers, and that those people are saved in his power, not of their own works, and they're going to be with him eternally. They're going to experience eternal love, eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal adventure with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's not a cloud and a harp. It's going to be the real thing. All the things that you think are the most fun things that you could ever do in life right now are nothing. They're a joke. If you had to do whatever you think is the most fun thing in the world right now, when you were at heaven, you'd be like, really? It'd be like having to do the worst thing ever here. Okay? The best thing that you can imagine. Guys, I know what you're thinking. Girls, probably something else. Nothing! <laughs> that doesn't even exist in heaven because that would be like, Pfft. why? Right? It's so good. And if you're not identified with Jesus Christ, today's the day for you to identify with him and experience eternal life instead of eternal separation from your creator. There's, there's an etern, eternal reality about who you are. That identity chart, when it lists those two, those, both those groups are eternal. The question is basically eternal death and suffering and separation from God or eternal life and peace and joy. For most people, that's not a difficult question about what they want. The question is, are you willing to do what God has asked you to do and let him do that for you? Are you willing to allow the grace of God in your life to submit to him as Lord, to believe that God raised him from the dead? The third chart that I'm going to put today only has a place for the Christ follower. It's up here. There it is. From human to Christ follower, unbeliever, that's the first division. The next place where we are divided out into Something different is, as individuals, our gifts and our callings. What are our individual gifts and callings? That's how we separate one from another. Go ahead and go back to the regular screen there. 
or the people online won't be able to see me. They'll just see that, and they want to see me, right? <clears throat> oh, anyway. Some people are like, no, can you put that in front here? That's... <laughs> your gifts and your callings, right? That's, gonna, that's the difference between me and you and you and you. The individuality who God made us to be, gifts and callings. You might be thinking to yourself right now, well, hang on. Unbelievers have gifts and callings and personalities. They have that too, right? Well, I'm going to have to give you the lawyer answer on that. Yes and no. Yes and no. People hate it. They come and they pay me money, and that's the kind of thing I tell them. It depends. How much money do you have? No, I don't say that. I don't say that. Maybe sometimes. Anyway, there, there's a good example from the Bible to help us see the problem with the gifts and the abilities of unbelievers. It's in Matthew 7. We actually went through the Sermon on the Mount a year or so ago. And this is right at the end of, this is the, end of the Sermon on the, Mount, uh, on the Mount. Okay, Matthew 5 through 7 is where you'll find that. And he's talking about these two people. Two people who build their house. One man builds his house on the rock. And one man builds his house on the sand. Now the storm comes to both men. But one of the houses falls and one doesn't. The one that's built on the rock stands. It does not fall. The one that's built on the sand, it falls. And Jesus says, and great was its fall. Now, both of them were able to build a house. It's not that there was no ability. They both had a house. But only one stood. Only one was anchored to the rock. If we do not anchor ourselves to the rock, to Jesus Christ, we work for nothing. All our gifts, all our talents, all our abilities, all your money, all your whatever, it's going to end up being worthless. And it's going to fall as soon as the storm comes. That's the fact. We don't like to anchor things to Christ because there's an implication for that, that we have to follow him. So we talk about morality. You talk about morality with anybody these days. Not anybody, but a lot of people. And they're going to say, Something like, well, you know, this might be right for you. This is what's right for me. You should accept or in some cases celebrate what's right for me and I'm going to be okay with what's right for you and we're going to do that kind of thing. The problem with that is it's not anchored anywhere. And so you go, why would I care? What's, why, why would it matter what's right for you or right for me? The word right doesn't even matter anymore. The word right and wrong goes away when it's not anchored into something. It's the same way with your gifts and your abilities. If they're not anchored into something, they're meaningless, worthless, and useless. They don't do anything for you. If you're in the category unbeliever and you have gifts and abilities and talents, you're like, I'm, I'm pretty good at a lot of stuff. It doesn't matter. You will not do anything of lasting importance, of eternal importance, because it's all going to fall down. That's what the Bible says. And it's true. And most of you have seen it. That's why you came to Jesus. That's why you came to Jesus. When we do not anchor in Christ, we work for nothing. It's the problem with finding your strength in yourself and all this self-help stuff out there. Find the strength in yourself. There is no strength in you. That's not the way you were made. You were literally created and designed. That first thing that says human means you were created and designed to find your strength in God. That's where it comes from. You're a car with no gas. You might be a pretty car, but you got, you're not going anywhere because you were literally designed to work within the power of God. It's the way you were designed. It's the way you were designed. It's God who empowers us to do good works. We didn't save ourselves. God saved us. We will not be able to use our gifts from God, which every one of you, anyone listening has those gifts, has gifts from God, individual gifts that make you special and unique and important. 
But without the one who gave you those gifts, you're wasting your time. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What does that mean? That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. That's what you were created for. You want to know what you are created for? For good works. And here's the great part. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You ought to be walking in the works that God created for you. That's what makes you, that's where the, the individual part of your identity, that, that special relationship between you and God. We have a relationship as a church with God. We're the body of Christ. But each one of us in that body is an individual. You have that relationship. That's what you're supposed to be walking in. If you're an unbeliever, you're not even plugged in. You're not plugged into the power of God. You're not plugged into his church, his body, which is doing things. You don't have any of that. God created us for good works. He prepared those works that we should walk in them with his grace and power in our lives. Because without those things, we can do nothing. John 15, 5 through 8. This is Jesus. He's talking. He says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Okay? So just imagine this like a grapevine. You get the vine. It's much thicker. Then you get these branches coming off. The branches are getting their juice from the vine. Okay? The vine is what's giving life to the branches. So he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. It's easy to see where he's going to go from there. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Oh, but I've, but I've, you know, I love my kids and I love my, th- and I do the, it's going to go nowhere. It's going to be worthless. It's not going to help you. You will not bear fruit outside of Christ. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. See, because if you're abiding in Christ, he's going to be transforming your life so that what you ask him will be the things that, the vine, that make sense to the vine, and he's going to give them to you, and you're going to become fruitful. If you're not, you're doing your own thing, you're worthless. Your works are worthless. We can't do anything without him. Jesus Christ makes that so clear. A branch is nothing without the vine, as we all know from botany, right? All of you studied botany, I'm sure, right? We had horticulture when I was at Fort Vancouver High School, horticulture. All the kids that wanted to grow pot were in horticulture, right? there, <laughs> learning how that worked. Great class. Anyway, no, I... I never took horticulture. Too lazy to grow pot. I couldn't do that, you know. Uh, anyway, no. All the horticulture. I went back to horticulture. I, I don't know. It's fine. I'm just kidding. It's a joke. You'll be all right. All right. A branch is nothing without the vine, guys. It's nothing. It withers and it dies. You see this sometimes. People refuse to abide in Christ, and you watch their life wither. Even for the believer, you see this sometimes. Right? They refuse to get their power, their strength, their marching orders from the vine, and they start withering. And it's not until somebody comes along and be like, abide in the vine, so he can abide in you, you can be fruitful, and then you see that fruitfulness. That's where you have to be. You can uh, amass all the money in the world. You can be the best-looking person. You can have all the people, everyone, just tell you you're the best thing there is. 
everything the world has to offer, you can have. And without Jesus, you're just an unfruitful branch fit for the fire. All that stuff that, peop- that the world will tell you, this is what you should want. Go after it. And how many wealthy people do we see that are miserable? Because their wealth isn't the thing that's going to make them happy. We tell people that. How many, how many people have the midlife crisis, right? They turn somewhere 40, 50 years old. They buy a motorcycle. <laughs> it's not a midlife crisis. I just like to drive fast. Okay. You're like, wait, wait a second. That's not... Um, no, listen, you see it, they go through it because what they, what they were told was get the family, go to, go to, you know, get the job, get the family, get the house and the white picket fence and the thing, blah, 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 blah. And then they get to that, they've got all that stuff and they go, I don't feel good. I don't feel like this is getting me anything. So I'll ditch all that and just try to give myself all kinds of pleasure. That does not work. And it ends either in coming back to reality or coming to Christ or oftentimes in suicide. That's where it goes because they go, there is nothing here for me. It's like, no, everything was here for you. You just didn't abide in the vine. If you have everything the world has to offer and you don't have Jesus, you're just an unfruitful branch. You are literally worse off than the Christ follower with the most difficult life of poverty and sickness and, and distress and all the things that the world fears and freaks out about. Like, what if this happens? I lose all my life. The Christian, the sky, all of that. Is way better off than the richest person in the world without Jesus. Because our treasure's in heaven, not on earth. We're not promised that it's all going to be fun and great and grand all the time. It's going to be tough sometimes. But your fruitfulness, your fruitfulness, eternal works that are going to last, that all comes from Jesus. Doesn't matter who you are or whether you're the smartest person, you have the education, you have the money, or you've been whatever. You've been the worst sinner. It doesn't matter. If you abide in the vine, he's going to do those works through you. This is so important. Because what the Christ follower has is Christ, the vine, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, which is far above all the riches of this world. And you can produce fruit because Christ is producing it in you that is literally of eternal importance. What you can take with you, very little. I've never seen someone take anything with them from this world. The only thing they take with them is the thing that they had from the eternal world. That's Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, you got nothing. There's a French philosopher. His name was Albert Camus. Just Albert Camus is how it's written here. So that's it's Albert Camus. He was an existentialist, and that sounds very fancy. Uh, the existentialists were a group of philosophers that were real worked up about the problem of existence. They were confused and dismayed about the fact that they existed. That was their thing. So they were trying to work through that problem. In some ways, their real main problem was that they didn't listen to the identity series. <laughs> they were trying to figure out how it makes sense that we exist and that we're alive when they often were atheists and believed that basically we had all, you know, there was a little, somehow there's a cell and it became two cells and then it became buff. That, that's, that, that's the mindset they had, right? That, that was the, some people were like, buff? He means strong. No, buff Norman. He's right here in the front. If you don't know him, you need to get to know him. Okay, good guy, good guy, flies an airplane. 
Good times. Midlife crisis? Yeah, no, it's not a midlife crisis. He just, he's flown it since he was young. It's fine. He's fine. Don't worry about it. Anyway, they're existentialists. Let me get, let me get on track here. We're gonna, well, this might be seven sermons. Uh, listen, so they're, fr- they're freaked out about it, right? Existential angst. They're, they're freaked out because they don't understand that God made us, and we do have a plan and a purpose. But they couldn't, they couldn't get it. Mr. Camus, Albert, worked with this myth about a guy named Sisyphus. Sisyphus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sisyphus had upset some Greek god, okay? Some Greek, you know, they're always getting mad at each other. That's the whole thing. So he's upset some Greek god. So his punishment, his sentence is that he's got, every day he's got to wake up and he's got this big rock. He's got to take this rock and there's a hill and he's got to roll this rock up to the top of the hill all day long, just sweating, rolling a rock. I don't know if you ever rolled a rock to the top of the hill. Probably not, but I'm guessing it's hard. He gets up to the top and when he gets to the top, down goes the rock to the bottom of the hill. Next day, rock to the top of the hill. Eternally, rock to the top of the hill, rock rolling back down. Okay? This is how Albert Camus seen life. No purpose. Your work is worthless. You roll the rock to the top of the hill, down the rock comes. This is, we see some of this in Ecclesiastes where Solomon's looking at the work that isn't grounded in God and saying, it's all vanity. It's worthless. And so this is where Camus is, seeing this kind of bummer for Sisyphus. Some of you are thinking, that sounds like my job. You know, well, but no, it's not. Sisyphus did get paid, so stop complaining. Anyway, here's the thing. <laughs> this is actually the state of every person who is not abiding in Christ. Every person who is not in the vine, does not anchor their gifts in God, is like Sisyphus. You're rolling a rock up, it's rolling back down, it's doing you no good. You are accomplishing nothing of eternal value. That's where you are. And Camus saw that for the unbeliever, for the atheist, it became very clear that's all there was. When they got rid of the idea of God, purpose, identity, all of those things, what they were left with was Sisyphus. That's the unbeliever. That's the life they're living. But even with that, all things can be redeemed. Even the work of the unbeliever. Listen to this, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. If you're an unbeliever, that's not the end of the story. All of us were unbelievers. Everyone here that is a Christ follower now was at one time an unbeliever in unfruitful works. But God has redeemed us, and he can redeem you. And I think he even redeems some of the work that you did that wasn't the right thing before. He redeems it when you come in to him. And by the way, this is kind of the crazy thing, but all the work that the unbeliever is doing, to the extent that it has any value, God works it together for good, but not for them. For you. It's like, not only are you rolling a rock to the top of the hill and it's coming back down as far as you're concerned, I get the rock at the end of the day. Like, like it's, it's, it's for the believers at the end. He's going to work all those things, even the unfruitful works of the unbeliever, for us. You don't want to be the guy or the girl who's wasting your work, wasting your gifts, wasting your talent, wasting your identity, which it should be in Christ, by doing unfruitful works that will do nothing for you. But you can be redeemed. You can be redeemed. You can follow Jesus Christ. You can confess with your mouth that he's Lord and believe with your heart that God's raised him from the dead and you'll be saved and your works will be redeemed. 
you repent and turn to God, your gifts, your personality, your calling, redeemed. But for those who will not, those who won't turn from their sin, who decide they're going to be in charge, they won't make Jesus Lord of their life, they're going to be unfruitful branches, and they're going to be fit only for the fire. Withered, dead, burned up. This is why your identity is so important. This is why we're spending all this time. You've got to understand this. If your identity is not in Christ, you are just throwing away your time, your talent, your money, everything. It's all going to nothing. I don't want that for you. We've got to do our works in Christ's strength for his glory and not seek our own glory, which is what the world tells you to do. Seek your own glory. For those of you who are in Christ, let me just tell you something. Your gifts and your calling, they're such an important part of your identity. They're just, you're going to be, at some point, face-to-face with Christ. And he's going to know you better than you know yourself. And he's going to be able to tell you, hey, listen, this thing that I gave you, you're the only one. You're the only one of all that I've created that has this particular makeup. The only one that can glorify me in just this way. The only one that that has this. Just like if you have children, every one of them is different. Not better or worse, or at least you don't tell them that. They're just, (laughs) they're not better or worse. Oh my gosh, my son is here. He's going to, they're not better or worse. Listen, they're just, they're all different. And as God's children, we're all different. They all do, the smile that you have when you see your kids be your kids, be themselves, times a million with Christ. I, I made you. I made you to love you, died for you, because I wanted to see your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your personality, and enjoy that relationship with just you. And every one of you has that. Every one of you can have that with Jesus if you'll turn to him. The things that make you an individual, that give you an identity, are all wrapped up in your personality, your gifts, and your calling. And every one of you has both practical and spiritual gifts, okay? There's things that you can do that are practical, that you might be good at, and, whatever, and then there's spiritual gifts, which are a whole other thing. We're not going to be able to get into all that today, but we're, we're going to go. We're going we're to get there, hopefully. But God has designed those into you so that you can glorify God and have that individual relationship with him in your own individual, personal way based on your own identity that he's created as he knit you together in your mother's womb, as he knows how many hairs are on your head. Some of you, that's easier to know. (laughs) Some of you, I know how many hairs are on your head. So, (laughs) it's terrible. You used to have, anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I've seen your Facebook profile where you still had hair. I'm like, how old is this picture? It doesn't matter. I don't do that. Yeah, I've seen it. Okay, anyway. Before we dive deeper into personality and gifts and calling, we got to study what God tells us about how to view ourselves in light of the gifts and talents and abilities that he's given us. we got to understand that. Now, you might remember from last time our friend Judge David C. Mobley. I talked about him last time. If you don't know who I'm talking about, it's because you weren't here last time where you didn't watch the sermon, and that's on you, okay? Um, but he's this judge from this like, small county. I, just, I was just looking for a small county somewhere in the middle of the country with a judge. Because I know in small counties, 
you know, a judge is kind of really well known in these little counties. So J Judge David C. Mobley is probably super well known in this county of uh, 10, 10, 11,000 people. Okay? And, and he could let that go to his head. I don't know him. Okay? David, he may be the best guy ever. I don't know him. But he may let that go to his head and think, I'm a pretty special guy. Right until he goes past the county line and realizes that nobody knows who he is. You, there's more people who have now heard who he is, right? I have made this guy more famous than he probably is. You know, that, but you can get this idea of your importance, and it can get broken. You can get drunk on your own you know, value or your perception of your value as wrapped up in things like how other people see you. I don't know that he's like that, but we are sometimes. We are sometimes. Listen to what the scripture teaches in Romans 12, 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. A little warning for us here. This is a passage that we should be constantly going to, to assess to assess ourselves and the way we're thinking biblically, to think biblically about ourselves. We've been studying identity for 10 messages because we struggle so much with our identity. We don't know how to think about ourselves. That's what's going on in this world right now. We do not know how to think about ourselves because of people like the existentialists and the postmoderns and all these people who have brought all these philosophies of the world that have clouded our understanding because we don't always anchor ourselves in Christ and in the scripture. We get sideways. And the world is very sideways on this. Listen to this. There's a book titled The Millennials. It's by Tom and Jess Rayner. Um, and in the book, they say this. We asked millennials to respond to a simple statement. Here's the statement. I believe I can do something great. Those who agree with that statement represented 96% of those we surveyed. 96% of the millennials they talked to believed in themselves that they can do something great. Now, I actually think that's a good thing. That's good. That's, that's, that's positive. They can do something great. If they understand that biblically, they would understand that that's very true in Christ. But either way, that's how they felt, okay? But that, that information doesn't give us all the facts. Listen to this, an article from March of this year by Jenny Helms. It states this, according to a 2019 report from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, major depression diagnoses are rising at a faster rate for millennials, a 47% increase since 2013 compared to any other age group. Additionally, they're not only more depressed than any other age groups, they also struggle with the other side of the coin, anxiety. A 2018 survey from the American Psychiatry Association states that millennials are by and large the most anxious generation. Now, this is not about dogging on millennials. I think this stuff is true for every generation. I just happen to have statistics for these ones. We have a whole generation there. I believe the biggest generation that's living right now, something like 80 million people or something, who both think very highly of themselves, that they can accomplish great things, and at the same time suffer with more depression and anxiety than anybody. There's a brokenness there. There's a brokenness there where on one side it's like, I'm the best, on this side it's like, I feel terrible. Because that's what the world does to us. Every single person, I think, struggles with both of those things sometimes. Some of you only struggle on one side or the other. It's always, I'm terrible, 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 and you, and, and, and you need to stop that. Some of you struggle on the other side. I'm great, great, great. It's not true. I just, it's not, okay? Neither of those things is true. 
That's why he's telling us to think this way. Now, to th- it's about thinking, right? Thinking. Don't think of yourself in this way. We have to have clear thinking. Clear thinking. We cannot listen to the world's philosophy on our lives and on our value, or we end up in really weird places where we think too highly and too lowly of ourselves at the same time. The last thing you're going to get from the world is a sober assessment of who you are. You're not going to get that from the world. So let's study through this passage a little bit and see what the Lord's teaching us. First part of it. For I say, through the grace given to me. Now, what does that tell me? Paul's writing here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he sets up this section by telling us that he is teaching us through the grace given to him. Meaning what? He had to have grace to understand any of this. He also, like every one of us, struggles and suffers with these things and had to have grace in order to be even able to teach in the power of the Holy Spirit to the rest of us about this. He needs grace to understand it even for himself. So you can relax and recognize if even Paul has to do that, we're probably going to be in that space too. We need some grace. It's information that is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. That's what the scripture is. It's a gift from God. Now, without this grace, Paul wouldn't know any better how to think about himself than anyone else. He needed it. We need it. The fallen world is constantly fighting with us in our understanding of who we are. They reject God. They reject the idea of plan and purpose. They reject the idea of morality. They reject the idea of eternity. They reject any idea that gets in the way of them doing what they want to do. And so it's no surprise that we end up all over the place on issues like our own identity. It says next, to everyone who is among you. Now, there's two things to consider here. First, everyone means everyone. None of us don't have to worry about this, okay? We need grace to rest our identity in Christ, and all of us need it. Everyone who is among you. So whatever group Paul is talking to here, with no exceptions, need to hear this. So the second thing is, who's the group? Is it unbelievers, prideful, and arrogant people who need to get some humility? Nope. We only need to go back to the first chapter to know who this is written to. Romans 1.7. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The teaching is to the Christ followers in Rome, and more generally to all Christ followers. Not to, well, I understand those really arrogant people in the world need to hear this. Nope. This is for Christ followers. That's who he's talking to. None of us are beyond the difficulty of having an incorrect view of our own identity. None of us are. We've got to assess ourselves according to this teaching. Then he says this, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, you might think to yourself that that this word himself and he means that this generally applies to men. And I don't blame you if you believe that. Um, but if you're a woman and you're thinking that says him, I don't have to worry about that. You're thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. Um, that's, the pronouns aren't, that's not the, that's the Greek is trying to, those are the neuter pronouns. They refer to everybody. He and himself in this case just means everybody. Okay? Everyone. This passage is so difficult for them because they're living now, particularly, it's interesting, this is in the, in the letter to the Romans, because particularly in Rome, they're living in this honor-shame culture where it is the thing to do to honor yourself, to build yourself up, to boast, right? You hear all this stuff about boasting you know, in Paul's letter. So don't boast in this, boast in Christ. Because what they would do is they boast in their achievements, right? Julius Caesar and, and all, you know, all these people, they're, they're saying, I'm the greatest. Look where I've conquered. Look what I've done. I've given this. There's a whole, they write a whole book about themselves just talking about their accomplishments. 
Okay, that it was all that you'd have people that would have that have these groups of folks, this entourage that would follow them around and praise them. That was a big deal. You built yourself up. You boasted. This was the Roman way. This is the way. That was good. Now we're like, oh, that's cringy. Guy's talking about himself like that. That's like, you know, at least humble brag. You know, you can get that a little bit turned off, which that's terrible. Don't do that. We all know what you're doing. Anyway, they're, they're bragging. We in, in our society, we don't like it. But the only reason is because our society has been shaped by the scripture. Even though we reject it in every which way, our society has been shaped largely by the scripture, which is why we reject bragging like that. But they didn't at that time. So when he's going to these Roman Christians saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, he's going right at it because some of them were probably braggers. Because that was the thing to do. These people were all about themselves, honoring themselves, having other people honor them. That was the culture. And this is the culture that Paul's addressing and correcting. It's a good thing we don't have that in our culture. <laughs> Listen to any politician or gangster rapper. They do that a lot too. Um, a lot of people, they want to talk about themselves. Look at my accomplishment. I made the stock market go up and that guy couldn't. And then the next guy goes, I made the stock market go up and that guy couldn't. I beat this and I did this and I whatever. And we're all like, yeah, whatever. Okay? Just send us more money. No, I don't, I don't think that. We're, but that's how they talk, right? They boast. They brag. That's the culture. And Paul's saying, have some humility. Psalm 131, 1 through 3. This is a good one for us. Lord, my heart is not haughty. Lifted up, built up, thinking it's all that. Nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We are not supposed to be worked up about how important we are and how important are the things that we do. We're supposed to be like a weaned child sitting with, with their mom, peaceful, relaxed, content, content with whatever God wants to do for us, not worked up about am I better than her or him? Do I look better than her or him? Is my Instagram profile doing what it needs to do for me, putting me in the right place and the right status? Did I get the new position at work so I can be over these people? Whatever it is in your life, that's not of God. What it's saying is, I reject what God has said about me, and I need the world to tell me. I need the world to constantly tell me that I have value, because I refuse to believe when God tells me I have value. Because if you believe that God, when God told you I have value, you would chill out. Relax. I love you guys. You're okay. You don't need to prove anything. It's not about what you do in that sense. It's about who you are. The world wants to make you think all those other things. And they destroy people. Our young people are being destroyed. This is a very important message for them. But you know what? Our older people need to hear it too. We're not to be concerned with our own honor, but to lift up others. We're not to look for our own glory like the unbelieving Romans, we're looking to build up other people, to serve other people. Jesus Christ turns the world 
upside down, as he always does. The Romans are saying, boast, brag, put yourself above others, have an entourage, show that you're great and glorious. And Christ comes along and goes, what? No. Serve. Serve. Sacrifice. Build others up. And he didn't just say it. He came and did it. That's what Christmas is about. That Jesus Christ humbled himself to become a human being, a man, and suffer with our nonsense and die. And all he's saying is, listen, I showed you how to do it. You too do it. And as he was glorified, we will be glorified with him. God will lift us up. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. You have no idea how much that is part of my heart when I think about you and me. I want our church, this local expression of the body of Christ, to be like that. Affection, mercy, like-mindedness, one accord, love. Let nothing be done, it says, verse 3, through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. If you spent more of your time thinking about others as better than yourselves, lifting them up, not better like you're worthless, just wanting to see the best for them, and less time worried about that you weren't getting the best, life's going to be a lot better because this is how Christ has called us to live. We ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but we should think of ourselves, as it says, soberly. It means we need to think well, to think properly. People who aren't sober don't think well, okay? It doesn't mean, so that we're very, very clear, that when he says think soberly, he means think you're worthless, think you have no value, think you're a terrible person. That isn't sober thinking. The whole scripture is telling you who God is and who you are and who he's made you to be. You are valuable. You're incredibly important. You're incredibly gifted and talented, and you have a high and glorious calling in Christ Jesus. You should think all that. That's sober thinking. It's not that we shouldn't feel great about ourselves as we are in Christ. It's that we ought not to start lifting ourselves above others, because when we do so, we start thinking that we can lift ourselves above Christ, because he's been very clear about who you are and about who everyone sitting around you is, about what he's called you to do. It's a broken thing to think highly of ourselves, without giving all the glory to God. It's a broken thing to think lowly of ourselves. We need to give all the glory to God. Because here's the thing, guys. What do you have that he hasn't given you? What do you have that he hasn't given you? Nothing. You have nothing that he has not given you. If you got it, he gave it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you, indeed, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Look at me. I'm so great. That's an odd thing to do when what you have, you have received. There are two ways to react to that truth. Ignore it and believe 
that you should praise your own self and you have your own strength and just think that that's not true, that God didn't give it to you, that you made it for yourself. You pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You're so tough. That's not sober thinking. The other way is to glorify God and to be thankful and to praise him for all the gifts he has given us. What an amazing thing. We find life when we can rest in the gifts of God. I know, I can see they put the thing up for me. It's 1127. <laughs> Here's the thing, and I just want to be really honest with you. I don't care. All right. <laughs> I'm going to finish this one at least, okay? Might be a few minutes. Um, we got we to glorify God. We got to be thankful for what he's given us. That's where you find life. That's, that's where you find peace and joy. We only find disappointment and grief when we start relying on our own strength because what we find out very quickly is without the power of God, we can't do the things that we think we should be able to do when we think too highly of ourselves. We have to live in humility if we're going to live in Christ. That's sober thinking. Humility doesn't mean I think I'm the worst. That's false humility. It's really pride when you do that kind of thing. Humility means I understand who I am. I'm completely content in who I am in Christ, and now I want to build other people up. That's humility. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in the book Mere Christianity. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking, of moving your limbs from moment to moment, is given to you by God. If you divided, devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it is really like. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me a sixpence. That's money in England. Give me a sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he is pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. When a man has made these two discoveries, God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. I am overjoyed to be able to buy God, my God, the King of kings, the creator of the universe, a present with the sixpence he has given me. What a joyful thing. All these gifts are from him. James 1, 16 through 70. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It's all from him, guys. And what a glorious blessing. The first thing is to start discovering it, which we're going to get to, Lord willing. And the next thing is to be thankful and just to enjoy what God has given you and be like that kid. Can I have some money to buy you a present? Sure. You buy the present, and he's happy, and he gives you a hug, and he loves it that you went and did that with what he gave you. But don't forget that he gave it to you. That's where we need to be, that childlike faith, that desire to have a relationship with God like our daddy, Abba, Father. It's the greatest thing that I can imagine that he thought of me at all to give me any gift, let alone his son who died for my sin. His only begotten son who died on the cross for all the times I squandered the sixpence, for all the times I rebelled, for all my selfishness, but praise God, he made me new. And he can make you new. Second Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You are new too if you identify with Christ. 
If you're not identified with Christ, you can be new. Don't wait. Do that today. If the Lord is calling you to him, this is for the unbeliever who's listening. If the Lord is calling you to him, it would not be sober thinking to reject him. Good thinking says, God, I'm yours. I believe that you were raised from the dead, Jesus. You're the Lord of my life. That's what sober thinking looks like. Lord willing, this will be to continued. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for gifts that you've given us that only come from you. They're not ours. They're not ours in any sense other than as gifts from you that you've given us that we might pour them out back for you, that we might be in this relationship, Lord, of you granting us these gifts and us using them for your glory. God, you're, you're just amazing. And we stand in awe of you this morning, remembering the sacrifice that you made for us. Remembering who we are in you. And thanking you that you brought us from who we are in our own weakness to who we are in you and your strength. God, I can't do this. I can't do anything without the power of your Holy Spirit. You've showed me that many times. Thank you for humbling me. I pray you would do the same for every believer here. That we could just enjoy being yours. God, if there are people here today who don't know you, God, please draw them. Let them confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in their heart that you raise him from the dead, that they might be saved. The people who need to get baptized, I pray they would do that. There are people who need to give up on living in their own strength and thinking more highly of themselves than they ought and more lowly of themselves than they ought and not thinking soberly about who they are, that they would have the strength and the peace that comes from knowing that they're anchored in you and there's no storm that can shake them. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.